For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Um, Our normal pattern on a Sunday morning is uh, we open the Bible together. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in this morning or one was handed to you, uh, there's a sheet in there. On the back of that sheet is the passage that we will be using today, so you can use that if you don't have a Bible I would invite you to open, if you have one, to Leviticus 17. And as you open there, I just kind of want to talk about the insane experience that we have today of being able to have a solution to any problem, like literally at our fingertips, right? Like we, uh, we carry smartphones around with us, at least a lot of us do. Uh, even as I stand up and preach here this morning, I could be, you don't know what I'm doing with this iPad up here. I, was, I could be looking at, you know, I'm figuring things out or asking Google all sorts of questions or talking to chat GPT. I mean, you just would not know what I'm engaging with up here. But, uh, but it is insane to think that like literally any problem that I have, like if I don't know anybody else in my life who has my problem, I can go to the internet and find at least 10 other people somewhere else in the world who have had my problem and potentially figure out solutions from them for my problem, right? Uh, and so there's that, uh, that reality that these are technology, you know, phones, iPads, whatever they are. They are incredibly useful tools, but it also does something that I have to be very vigilant about because... If I live in a world with solutions constantly at my fingertips, and I'm not vigilant, I can, and by the way, I have, gone to the things that I can find in here first for my solutions, right? So, so without giving thought to God and the particular solution that he might want to provide, I would look here. And the tool, if I do that enough, right, and this is why we need to be vigilant, if I do that enough, what the tool will do is that I think I'm using the tool, but in reality, the tool is using me. The tool is shaping me into a certain image, right? It will actually shape my soul into reliance on something other than God. So uh, we are in this series called Not of This World. This is a series where we're kind of working our way through the book of Leviticus. We are now in Leviticus chapter 17. But in Not of This World, what we're really asking is how does God shape a people or intend for a people that he calls his to be different from the world around them? Like, how is he distinguishing his people from the world around them? So God's expectation in the book of Leviticus, he has told his people this, you will be holy as I am holy. Another way that you could think of that is that you will be otherworldly as you live in this world. Right? You will be set apart from the world around you. You will be Different. So I just want to give us, before we move too far, I want to give us a definition of holiness because I feel like the word can sometimes get misunderstood. This is what holiness is. Holiness is God's call upon his people to display an otherworldly way of life. God's call upon his people to display an otherworldly way of life. So let me just say, 
if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus or you're trying to understand Jesus or you're just even like wrapping your mind around who Jesus is, I want to first let you know that we're really glad that you're here. My goal this morning is to invite you to engage in an examination process because I'm going to be talking about the life that like Jesus followers or followers of Jesus are called to live. And I want you to know, if you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, I'm not here to kind of uh, look at you through that lens and then judge you through that lens. I'm not here to examine you through that lens. In fact, the things that I say here this morning are primarily for Jesus followers. But what I want you to invite you to do is I just want you, as you listen Examine the way of life that you're hearing me talk about up here and ask whether or not that way of life might be a compelling way of life for you. That's what I want to ask you to do. Like, I want you to consider, is there a possible level of legitimacy to the way of life that is being described? What degree of interest might you have in developing that way of following Jesus? So I'd invite you to examine that as we move forward this morning. Uh, And for the rest of us, those of us who are believing in Jesus, these commands are indeed for us, or at least the implications of these commands are for us. So in Leviticus 17, God gives his people commands on how they will live otherworldly. Leviticus 17 verse 1 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, and then he's going to finish the thought, but I just want to say a quick note here. Uh, We, uh, in our language, we typically have like two words for the word kill. We have murder and kill. Like those are the kind of the only categories that we have around this word. The Hebrew language has so many words for the word kill, like so many words. And this particular word, when it talks about kill here, is actually only used in the context of sacrifice. So uh, it would be better read, or as we think about this, we should consider when it says whenever anyone kills an animal, it's actually literally whenever anyone sacrifices an animal. So it's talking about for the sake of sacrifice in verse 4. And does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and the man shall be cut off from among his people. So God is addressing something specific here. Apparently, people have been setting up their own shrines for worship, both inside the camp and outside the camp and kind of wherever they want to go. They're setting up their own shrines in random places and they're bringing animals there and killing those animals for the sake of sacrifice in those places. And God is saying, get this, you can't just sacrifice in any old place. Like, there is one specific place that you will make your sacrifices. Now, a quick note, if you're just not used to, like, the Old Testament and what it says, uh, we, don't, we don't do sacrifices here. I just want to let you know that. Like, we don't sacrifice animals. Uh, this, you know, Jesus was our sacrifice, right? He wiped out that system, and so we are here just worshiping Jesus. I want to let you know that. But there is insight for us to gain. God is saying that you can't sacrifice in, uh, sacrifice in any old place, that it has to be in a specific place. In fact, it has to be in the place that I have put my presence, in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the place where everybody in Israel comes to worship me. 
And it's interesting, he says, if, if you don't follow this rule, if you sacrifice in any old place, I'm going to attribute blood guilt to you. Blood guilt means God is saying, I am going to look at you like I would look at a murderer. I will see you as a murderer. That's kind of the weight of what will be upon you. So it's quite serious, this making a sacrifice in any old place. And verse 7 explains why it's so serious. Verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Okay, so what in the world is happening here? Uh, apparently, since the Israelites have left Egypt, remember God saved them out of Egypt. He performed many miracles for them, their sake. He took them through the Red Sea. And since they have left Egypt, it has kind of entered their mind that uh, we should set up shrines and sacrifice to these things that God calls goat demons. Now, why would they do this? I'm glad you asked. Um, in pagan polytheistic religion, every kind of territory and every aspect of life has a God who is over that area of life. Right? Uh, there's a God of the river. There's a God of agriculture. There's a God who gives life. And Egypt, the place that they came from, was a pagan polytheistic religion. Right? That, which means that they thought there's a God over all of these different spaces and areas of life. So like, as an example of this, if like, I'm a Greek uh, polytheist, if, and I were living at that time, and I acknowledged the Greek pantheon, and I take a boat out into the middle of the ocean, and there is a terrible storm, and my boat might capsize, what I will probably do as a Greek polytheist, uh, since I worship many gods, what I, what I will do is I will call on the god Poseidon, and I will make a sacrifice to Poseidon even there in the middle of my boat because I know that Poseidon is the God over this territory, this area, and he is the one who can give me the most help. And this is the way that the Egyptians thought about life. In every area of life and in every territory that you might go in, there is going to be a different God that you have to interact with and make a sacrifice to to get that God's blessing. And so what have, uh, let's talk about the Israelites, what have some of them said about their wilderness journey? Oh, you know, it was, it was better for us back in Egypt where we were slaves. You know, oh, we missed the food that we used to eat in Egypt. It was so nice. And so then what are some of the Israelites doing? In their discontent, they are seeking answers from other spiritual powers besides Yahweh. God says, like, so, so where are they looking for these answers? Well, like any other polytheist, the natural answer is to talk to other gods and see what other gods might have a solution for them. And so who would they talk to? I want to submit to you that they would actually, they had in their mind a very specific Egyptian god, the god Kanum. That's who they would talk to, and we'll have a picture of Kanum up here on the screen for us. This is the god Kanum, the Egyptian god Kanum. Kanum was the god of fertility, the god who created the Nile, which is just in the mind of every Egyptian. There is this barren desert, which means that he is the one who brought water 
in the midst of the desert. And Kanum is the God who created human life in the Egyptian pantheon. So I want you to read what this God says about himself. He says, I am Kanum, the creator. My hands rest upon thee to protect thy person and to make sound thy body. I give thee thine heart. I am he who created himself. I am the primeval watery abyss, and I am the Nile who riseth at his will to give health for me to those who toil. And get this, I am the guide and director of all men, the Almighty, the Father of the gods. May you consider a scenario with me. The Israelites are discontent and complaining and they're traveling through the desert. And a handful of them say, why don't we seek answers from the God who gives life? Right, the God who brings water in the desert. The God who lets us have orgies to worship him, right? The God who lets us use substances to smoke and to drink to worship him. And so they developed a pattern of seeking power from the father of the Egyptian gods. And based on the passage, they had a regular pattern of doing this, that this is something they did on a regular basis. So last week, it's going to be hard to give you an entire refresher, but last week we talked about this God, demon, however you want to call it, called Azazel, right? This God who, this demon who was out in the wilderness, Azazel in Hebrew literally means strong God. And that was the one in the, in the Day of Atonement. All the sins are confessed over a goat, and that get goat gets sent out to the wilderness. We called that goat a garbage truck, right? It just carries all of the garbage of Israel out to Azazel in the wilderness. We have good reason to think that Kanum is the god that the Hebrews called Azazel. If he is the father of gods, they called him strong god. This is the God who gets the garbage truck on the Day of Atonement. But in reality, what is he? We keep, I keep using the word God, but in reality, what is he? Well, God makes clear here that he's no God, that he's just a goat demon. That's all that he is. And here Yahweh is saying, no more. We're not going to do this anymore. I, I am Yahweh, your God, who saved you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what he's clarifying to them. So he says in verse 7, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, and that this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Verse 8, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. 
So when you sacrifice for worship, you're going to do it here. That's what he says. Here is where you sacrifice to Yahweh. You might think, oh, I can use some goat shrine, but as long as I'm thinking about Yahweh when I use the goat shrine, it's okay. And God is saying, no, you can't do that. If you sacrifice it there, it's to a goat demon. You come here because this is where my presence is. This is where you sacrifice. And all of the people who live in your land, by the way, are also going to come here to sacrifice so that there is no confusion in Israel about who your devotion belongs to. God's people were unique in this, you need to know. There was no other God that cared about what places you sacrificed. There was no other God that was specific in saying, you need to come only to my temple. They didn't care where you went just as long as you also came to their temple and gave them glory as well. And so Yahweh, what he is doing, the God of the Israelites, he is seeking to eliminate every hint of something called syncretism from his people. Now that's a big word, but I'm going to define it for us. This is what syncretism is. Syncretism is the combining the worship of Yahweh with demonic beliefs and practices. At the end of the day, that's what syncretism is. It's combining worship of Yahweh with demonic beliefs and practices. Often, God's people would do this without realizing that they were doing it, right? Because they would see people performing certain acts and they said, oh, that's interesting. They got power that way. They got health that way. They got their problem solved that way. Uh, You know what? I think I'm going to do that too. That looks like an appealing way to get something that I need. Because... That's just the way that the people, that's all that they've ever known. It's all they've ever witnessed before in their life. So if you're running out of food, well, you're going to sacrifice to the agriculture God. Do you need to know how you'll fare in war? Well, maybe you'll uh, go consult with spirits to help you figure that out. Uh, Maybe you need more strength to do your job. Well, one of the ways that you could get some more strength is you could drink the blood of a bull. These are all demonic practices that were regularly practiced. And so God addresses these practices because he is seeking to counter their impulse to find power from other spiritual sources besides him. Right? Because those other evil spiritual sources, they might give you a temporary benefit. But God knows that they will ultimately lead to your destruction. And so that's why he sets all of this up. He warns them. In all of these cases, he says, you will be cut off. Basically, what that means is you will have to leave your people. You will have to be exiled from the land. But it's not simply that. Like, to be cut off, God is saying, you know, these might be my people. And if you're over here, I'm going to section you off in how I consider. So my hand of blessing is upon my people Israel. I am going to remove you from under my hand of blessing. I will not consider you to be one of my people. Okay, so then it goes on in verse 10. Other kinds of practices. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. So what is the purpose of eating blood in these practices? What does it do? Uh, In the mind of an ancient person, blood contained the life force of the thing. Right, so you stay alive as long as blood is coursing through your body, right? And if you lose too much blood, what happens? 
you die. That's right. Uh, and so when Cain killed Abel, and Abel's blood spilled out on the ground, God said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He's making a point that his life, which used to be inside of him, has now been spilt out onto the earth. So we need to understand what's happening here. Demonic practices, they operate by corrupting the created order. So one practice that they develop is this. Yes, life is in that blood. And if you make a practice of drinking the life from other things, you can enhance your power over nature. You can heal wounds in your body. You can utilize the life essence of the thing to influence nature. You can gain power over the bloodline of the person whose blood you drink. You can gain deeper knowledge or insight if you drink the blood. That's that's what all of these demonic uh, religions said. And so the lie is, if you consume life, you will enhance your own life. And God says, not here. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar for one purpose and one purpose only. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God says the removal of life from the flesh brings death in that flesh. Therefore, the removal of life is only good for one thing. Literally, paying the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. Yes? So if you're going to remove life, it shall have only one purpose. To pay the wages of sin. Blood cannot give you power. It will not enhance your life. In fact, uh, the suggestion would be that it invites the demons to invade your life. And it is not healing. And when you use it in that way, what he's saying is when you use it and you adopt these practices of the nations around you, what you are doing is that you're making a contract with demons. You're agreeing with them about the terms upon which they can now have influence in your life. And God says, in my economy, blood is only good for one thing. It pays the wages of sin. It purchases your forgiveness. It is life paid for the death that you have invited with your sin. Okay, so then in chapter 20, God goes on and he addresses two more areas of syncretism. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel or gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Verse 3, I myself will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from among the people. Uh, Molech, we've talked about this a few times recently, uh, through uh, basically through the suffering, uh, the death of babies. It was a a bronze statue. The bronze statue, they put a fire inside the God's belly. Uh, It would get very hot, and then they would place uh, children upon the hands of that God so that they could burn alive. And through the suffering, they uh, they would beat the drums 
uh, for the worship of Molech so loudly so that the parents could not hear the cries of their children when they were suffering. And the suggestion is that through the suffering and death of babies, that this territorial demon became powerful and would extend blessing to you and your family and your people. That's an obvious corruption of creation, right? Like the darkest, deepest kind of corruption of creation. Like God is saying, an image of God is too pristine for you to sacrifice it. You can't use human blood for sacrifice because when humans murder an image of God, we set ourselves against God. But demons don't have a problem with murdering images of God. So verse 4. And if the people of the land do it all, do at all, close their eyes to that man. So, so there's a payment that the people are supposed to carry out. If uh, one of your people sacrifices to Molech, you are to uh, give him the death penalty. Right? That, like, that is what that person needs. But then verse 4 says, if the people of the land close their eyes to that man, meaning they overlook what he has done, then God says, verse 5, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him and whoring after Molech. God says, this is how much I hate this kind of syncretism. Not only will you be cut off, but I will set my face against you. Like if your people fail to carry out the death penalty against you, if you sacrifice to Molech, not only will I remove my blessing from you, but I will pursue your demise. So verse 6, Leviticus 20. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off. Verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. All of this, every, even the cursing part, we typically think of it in terms of like whoever says mean things to their parents. And that's not what this is. This is actually very specific spiritual context that's being referred to here. Every single one of these things, mediums, necromancers, and curses... They are the use of spiritists, those who commune with the dead, those who tell fortunes, those who engage in practices of seeking power or influence from spirits to do something for their benefit, those who use words to call on spiritual powers to engage them against their parents. I mean, when somebody speaks a curse, what they're in this context, what they're doing is they're literally uh, calling on spiritual powers to do something terrible to their parents. And God says, if that happens, you are to put that person to death. And all of it is, at the end of the day, they are all tools of demons. All of these avenues would be really enticing to the Israelite. Because when you run into a situation and you don't know what to do about your situation, these pathways promised an instant answer. You know what you got to do with Yahweh? You have to wait on Yahweh. You don't have to wait on these powers. They give you instant access to what you are seeking. They give instant relief and very often pleasure in the process. So what are these? What are these and why is God instilling laws against them? God is essentially, in all of these uh, 
passages that we looked at, God is essentially calling these practices what they are. They're contracts with demons. Right? He's saying, I, I, I am the one spiritual being, the God of all creation, who has joined myself to you. I am Yahweh, your God. And every one of these tools that we're talking about is a demonic corruption of the created order. My people will not get their way by signing contracts with demons who steal and kill and destroy. My people will find their way by submitting only to me who extends mercy and forgiveness. No other God, no other demon has any mindset for mercy or forgiveness, but that is the mindset of Yahweh. Okay, so what does this have to do with you? Most of you, I'm going to wager, I don't know this to be universally true, but most of you have probably not interacted with the occult, right? Or sacrificed to demons, or sought healing by drinking blood, right? I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's not something that, that most of us have done. Though, let me say, if you have, right, um, I want to let you know that there's nothing that you could tell me that would surprise me. Uh, reach out to me. God wants you to repent, to renounce your activity, and to see the power of Jesus crush whatever you have signed a contract with. But for most of us, most of us, we need to see this principle. The principle that is kind of undergirding is the answer to a question. The question is this. Where do you look for answers? Right? Money, success, career, information on the internet, or when you encounter a problem, do you not so much look for answers as you do look for things that might help you ignore the problem or provide some kind of relief from the problem or provide temporary comfort in the midst of the problem? Things like illicit sex or drug or drink or another cigarette or even just food or TV or video games, right? So speaking to you, I want to just like be very transparent, uh, speaking to you as a person who used nicotine for six years of my life, I know what I was doing, right? I was looking to that substance to provide my body with a sense of relief, to provide my emotions with a sense of security, to provide uh, my mind a, a sense of focus. And every time I used it, I further enslaved myself to its mastery. I became reliant upon it for peace. I developed a place where I was captive to something besides Jesus. So not all of the things that I just listed, not all of them are bad things. But all of them can be powerful in the life of a person. And each of them can potentially become a very cruel master of your soul. And Yahweh establishes this principle with his people, first and foremost. They are cruel masters, but... I am a merciful master. Seek first 
your answers through me. Okay, so what? So what? I have two for us this morning. Number one, it is otherworldly to rely on Jesus for everything. Um, Jesus, uh, when he was at the beginning of his ministry, he came to a well. There was a woman at that well. And they had this whole like very complex interaction where he told her everything she ever did. But in the midst of that conversation, she raises this question because there was a debate between uh, her people and the Jews. Her people were Samaritans. Jesus was Jewish. And there was this debate. Um, where is the right temple? Right? Uh, should we sacrifice at our temple on that mountain or should we sacrifice at your temple on that mountain? That was the question that she asked. And Jesus kind of said, well, you know, like there's only one temple, right? And he kind of worked his way through that. It's in Jerusalem. But let's not worry about that. A day is coming when we will not worship in that temple or in that temple but we will worship in spirit and in truth, right? What he's saying is that there will be a day when worship is no longer confined to a specific space, that communion and relationship with God is not confined to a specific space. If we are believers in Jesus, right? He's saying through my death and resurrection, there is coming a day when believers in Jesus, God will be with them wherever they are. Right? Whatever he has to offer in any situation, what that means for us, we don't have to go walk to the temple to get it. We have access to it. We have access to what God has to offer us right now. So the question then is, do we take advantage of the privilege that is constantly afforded to us? Right? Like spiritual growth, it is a really interesting process because the goal of spiritual growth is that Jesus' life would be lived through you. Right? And part of spiritual growth is realizing how many parts of your life that actually impacts. Right? It, it, it touches everything. It spreads to everything. Because it is so unusual right, that, that prayer and the glory of Jesus would set the framework for how you approach a medical issue would set the framework for how you think about your career, would set the framework for how you structure your finances, would set the framework for how you plan and arrange your schedule and the activity of your life, would set the framework for what people you spend time with and don't spend time with. And so it's worth saying that it is otherworldly to rely on Jesus for everything. And the fact is that we have that available to us. We can now rely on him wherever we are. We can look to him for whatever he has to provide. And the encouragement to us is to look to him first, right? I, he provides medical solutions and he provides information on the internet. He, you know, he can just go down the list. He provides all of that stuff. But the question is, where are you going first? Okay, number two. Jesus is a better master. The demons offered relief, offered pleasure, offered temporary solutions. And the vast majority of people who interacted with them reaped a whirlwind of destruction in the process. You remember Jesus is talking about, um, you know, there are, there are many people 
who pretend to be the shepherd, but they're actually thieves. Then he said, uh, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. What he's talking about is when you latch onto that false way of life, promoted by that demonic thing, its end result is your destruction. That's what it wants to do. He says, but I, I'm different than they are. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, they create heavy burdens on you when you seek after them. He says, but come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, you know what they do is they create structures that hold you captive, that make you a prisoner. But I come and I give you freedom. The point of all of this is that he is stronger than the problem. Whatever the problem is, I don't know what problem it is that you're dealing with that you need a solution for, but I want to tell you, Jesus is stronger than the problem. He's stronger than whatever it is that you're facing. So why not try truly seeking him in the spaces of life where you are actually trying to to rely on other masters? He is merciful. He is kind. And he wants to show you his strength in that area of your life. So would you try seeking him? Pray with me, please. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your blood and the power of the things that you have accomplished for us. That you have broken into bars of iron, that you have shattered chains, that you have uh, indeed done setting of people free. But Lord, I also am recognizing this morning that that freedom is not something that many of us easily walk in. And it is so easy to be enticed by a different master and to give ourselves to that and to let it enslave us. And so, so Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring conviction this morning, wherever you need to bring conviction, so, so that in these spaces of our lives that we give over to other masters, that we might see the benefit of your mastery over those things, that we we might seek to actually see your power unveiled in our lives in these areas that we keep back from you, so that we might truly honor you as you are to be honored. Jesus, I thank you for these gifts. We thank you for your word and how you speak to us. We pray for awareness of your presence with us as we walk uh, further into worship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.